0: Hello, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Solutions Watch, and you will remember a few weeks ago on the program we were talking to Curtis Stone, aka The Urban Farmer, about the the concept of homesteading as a potential solution that we should be applying uh, going out from here. Um, But that was a very general overview kind of conversation. We didn't get a chance to drill down into specifics. I wanted to start drilling down into specifics on this topic with someone that knows a thing or two about this topic and who uh, should be familiar to my audience because he was on Solutions Watch here a few weeks ago, talking about investing in agorism. Uh, That's Jack Spirko of The Survival Podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com. I hope you are familiar with that. If not, I highly encourage you to check it out. Obviously, a ton of information on the types of things that we're concerned with here on Solutions Watch. Uh, Resiliency and permaculture and getting more off-grid, and forming communities, and being agorist, and working with alternative currencies, and all sorts of other topics besides... And I wanted to talk today specifically about a fascinating podcast that I heard a couple of months ago, uh, specifically episode 2817 of the Survival Podcast. Obviously, I'll put the link in the show notes. It was called Choosing Chicken Breeds Based on Homestead Goals and Intrinsic Characteristics, which is fascinating because I have never had backyard chickens. I've never actually planned on doing that, and I still don't. But that podcast was still valuable for me because... It got into some specifics about permaculture and design and the concept behind how do you plan out something, a system, so that you can plan it for all the inputs and outputs in that system and get them all accounted for before you even start doing what you're doing. Some really important principles. So even if you have no interest in backyard chickens, I would suggest you go and listen to that podcast right now. But let's bring him on for this conversation. Jack Spirko, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Hey man, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience again.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent. All right, well, let's start. I, I just want to hear you say the words "It depends." So let's say <laughs> someone comes to you with the question: "I'm thinking about getting some backyard chickens. What kind of chicken should I get, Jack?"
1: Well, that's one of those questions where there there probably isn't a wrong answer, but some answers are more right than others. So it depends, uh, and it, we can start looking at some of the things it would depend on, like. So where are you? So if you're in a really cold climate, there's certain birds that would have a predisposition to do better in a cold climate. That would be things like uh, a Brahma, Jersey Giant, uh, Cochins, which are the ones that have the feathered feet that help keep their feet warm. If you're in a kind of temperate climate that doesn't get that cold, doesn't get that hot, whatever you want as far as the temperature thing. If you're in a really hot climate, like a desert climate, then you're going to want to look at something like, white leghorns or Egyptian faomies, which are a great bird, but one of the ugliest damn chickens on the planet, at least the females are. And they're they're kind of annoying. But man, when you have, you know, you're in a desert climate or a really hot climate and you have a lot of predators, they're fast, they can fly. So they work better for that. And you, you just kind of drill down into those individual characteristics that are intrinsic to the breed. There's nothing wrong with going out and getting a half dozen birds, a dozen birds of just random different breeds. But if you want to start trying to figure out how to make this animal work in your system, you're going to want to look a little bit more at things like climate. Another thing you would look at is, well, do you, how do you want to manage these birds? Do you want to manage them in kind of a coop and run where we have a coop they go to at night and a confined area, and we're going to primarily use them as scratchers for making compost? probably want a heavier breed because when they scratch, they do a lot better job of chopping things up and incorporating things. If we want to free range them, we're looking for birds that have some agility because we're going to have predator issues. No matter what we do, we're going to have some predator issues. So agility is going to be more important. If we want to do chickens specifically for eggs, then we probably want to look at one of the hybrid uh, things like a sex link. And they call them sex links because when they're little baby chickens, instead of checking under the hood, which is really hard with a, Little tiny bird, uh, you can actually look at their color pattern and you can say, This is a male, this is a cockerel, this is a female, or what we call a pullet. And so they're really easy to sort at birth. That's why hatcheries like to sell them to people that want to know I'm buying mostly hens. Uh, but they produce just crazy amounts of eggs in their first couple, three years. So they're really good for the dedicated egg producer. They're terrible meat birds. They're just, they're, they don't have much, you know, in. When we look at breeds of animals, generally, if something excels at one thing, it doesn't excel at the other. And if it's dual purpose, it excels at neither. Right. So it's all a compromise situation. So we could go with like red sex links. They call them black stars over in Australia. They're the same bird. Um, Or we could go with more of a dual purpose bird. So if we want meat, dedicated meat bird, like we're just going to grow this thing. And when it reaches graduation day and it gets processed, we probably want to look at the boring old Cornish cross that the commercial hatcheries raise that, that are probably the same breed that you're buying when you go to the, the the store. Now, just because that's kind of garbage food doesn't mean yours has to be. You put them on pasture, you feed them high quality feed, and you end up with a much higher quality product. You know, so it, it again, it depends, right? W- what do you want? And that's, But that's the process that we come at this with. And I think the important thing to understand is we're breaking off like a single thing. How do we pick a chicken? But what we're doing that through what we call the permaculture lens. So we look at things a little bit differently. Then we're looking at this as a design science. Like we figure out what the end goal is. And then we design the system. And something as mundane as, hey, what breed of chicken? We can actually tailor that to the system. There's people that their literal purpose for their chickens is to make compost. So we can find a chicken that loves a scratch. People that want dual purpose, well, you really want dual purpose? Here's what you do. Pick two heavy breeds. I don't care what they are. But make sure your roosters are one breed and that your hens are another breed and you get hybrid vigor and your F1 first generation and you get bigger, meatier chickens. Like you're not going to get the big, huge double breasts of the Cornish Cross, but you're going to get that hybrid vigor. And hybrid's not a bad word. It doesn't mean GMO. It just means like shepherd and collie dog breeding together we get a call a shepherd collie puppy that's that's not an unnatural occurrence so that's kind of how i come at that I, it, the, again
0: just even in that response there's so much to pick out there and uh, it seems to me coming at this as a relative newcomer to the idea of permaculture and and design but it seems pretty obvious but it needs to be stated you have to have as clear a conception as possible when you start any project like chickens or anything else, what you are doing it for, what, what, what is your goal for this and design around that. And I know that sounds pretty basic, but I, I realize a lot of people starting out might just kind of allied over that point. Ah, It doesn't matter so much. Uh, speak to the importance of getting your goals down as specifically as possible and how you could do that, for example, with choosing chickens.
1: Yeah, let's, let's take that and look at something like the, what I call the Egyptian buzzard chicken, which is the Egyptian faomi. So these birds are only like a, a fully grown rooster if you do process it for meat, which I've done because you only need so many roosters, will weigh like when you process it like two and a half pounds. So it's not really a great meat bird, but again, they taste great. They're kind of like pheasant in size. But what that bird would be perfect for is a person has a lot of land, doesn't want to sell eggs because they're a smaller egg, right? But they just want a bird that they can pretty much let free range and and get most of its food from the land, and they have enough land to do that. That bird would be awesome for that. I've seen them, like hawks come in, I've seen the roosters come out and basically challenge the hawk, like, I'm going to beat your ass if you try to come take my hens, and like, that hawk could take that bird out, but that bird's so aggressive, the hawk's like, yeah, I think I'll go eat a rat, right? That has to be a really hungry hawk to come in on, on, on a bird that's being that aggressive back to them. So that's about... I don't care about anything except feeding my family as cheaply as possible. And by knowing that, you're able to pick the right bird. If we wanted really big meat birds, but we're okay with them being a stewing bird, right? Like a coal, Like something's going to have to be cooked slow and long. We don't necessarily need uh, to be making stir fry. Man, Jersey Giants, because they get almost as big as a freaking small turkey, right? So again, it's all about... Sit down and say, what do I want from this? What I find most people want are eggs. That's kind of that the, the chicken is like the the, uh, the gateway drug into livestock, right? Because everybody's familiar with them. There's anything you need to know, you can find out online in about five seconds. Of course, you're gonna get a lot of opinions. And if you ask the wrong question in the wrong place, you'll be told you're stupid. Or you say you want, you know, there's that there's that whole trolling thing in like it's everywhere. But if you just want concrete information, there's plenty of information there. Is it the right bird for everybody? I don't know. It depends, right? Like I I keep some chickens, and I keep little Bantam chickens, because the reason I chose these little Bantam chickens is the Bantam Cochins and Silkies are really broody. That means they like to actually sit on and take care of eggs. I don't really want more chickens. I want more ducks. I'm a duck farmer, right? So ducks, most of our domestic ducks, you know, they're really not... They don't have their heart in brooding babies. So you take duck eggs, you put them under a broody bantam chicken. She doesn't know. She doesn't care. It doesn't matter that the thing that hatches is going to be half as big as her the day it hatches. She'll take care of them. And then I don't have to do any work. So when I want to expand my duck flock, I just wait for one of my little banties to go broody, and I give her the eggs. And whatever it is you want to do, there's a way to figure out either this is the right thing for the job, or you don't want this at all. I mean, that's another thing, not... Not everybody needs chickens. The reason I do ducks, I do a lot of gardening and stuff like that. Ducks are lazy. They don't like like domestic ducks, right? They don't want to fly. So just by building my garden beds, you know, yay that high, they don't get up in there and mess things up. If I had full-size chickens, they get in everything. They tear everything up. If you'll eat it, they'll eat it. So you have to look at your landscape, how brittle is it. is. I'm on a very brittle landscape. I have very shallow soils. It's all rock and limestone. It's very alkaline. So the duck is a softer animal on the land. So that's why I went with ducks. I also like to make money. So we sell duck eggs for $8 a dozen. And we sell every egg that we don't want to use for ourselves. We have a waiting list for customers. We're much smaller now. But at one time, we were doing that with restaurants and things like that. And we were moving 80 dozen eggs a week at $8 a dozen. While people around us are selling chicken eggs for like whatever you can get because everybody has them. So, that was, an, I, that was a concept. That was an Agoras concept. Like, what does the market demand? So, we marketed a premium product into a premium marketplace, and that way everything paid for itself. We didn't make a ton of money, made a little bit of profit, but we ate the best quality food in the world for free. And the birds ate for free because they paid for themselves. That's how you have to come at each and every decision you're making when you're homesteading, if you're doing it, again, through that permaculture lens. We're gonna look at the land. First thing we look at when we look at land, moving off the chickens. Water, access, structure. So most people go to buy a piece of property, what they're thinking is what school district is it in? I'm like, is there water on the property? Can I put water on the property? How would the water flow across the property? Where can I impound water on the property? How can I make sure that I have enough water for myself, my family, and my animals? Access, how am I gonna be able to access the property? Where can I put a road in? If we put a road in on a hill, it erodes. If I put a road in on contour, it's stable. Structure, where are the structures? And where can I place the structures? It, it's so much beyond, like people think permaculture is like organic gardening. That's a that's that's what we would call a shirt in the permaculture wardrobe, right? We have a, a basically a design science based on ethics and based on a prime directive, which is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for yourself and for your children. And if it fits that, it goes in the wardrobe and then we pull it out as a design element where we need it.
0: Right. So let's start talking about that design science and how you go about walk us through the process. Say you're getting you're adding a new uh, livestock to your to your cadre there. You're you're thinking about getting chickens or ducks or pigs or whatever for the first time. What is the – obviously, you have certain physical li- limitations based on your climate, based on your land, those sorts of things. To what extent do you work with those and try to shape around them? And to what extent do you try to make shape the land into what you need for the purposes that you want?
1: Well, there's a saying we have that the more restrictions placed on a design, the more eloquent, eloquent the design, if the designer is good at his task. But we can only take that so far. So I have a three-acre property, brittle landscape – really harsh summers, I'm not going to put a cow on it, right? So there is a point where that breaks down, but the, the the restriction then is the size of the animal, right? So now we have to figure out, well, what does work here? In my case, ducks were what worked on the property. So here's another example of how that works out. So a duck, unlike a chicken, has got to be able to get wet. They like to swim, but they have to be able to immerse their head in water if you want them to breed They can do it on land, but they're, they're not good at it. Like it's, it's a really clumsy thing. They're an elegant animal in the water and they're really kind of a doofus animal on land. Right? So they have to have water. So I use these really inexpensive 21 gallon mixing tubs. Like you buy at home Depot or Lowe's They're for like mixing concrete and mortar in they're really durable. They last for years. They're like 10 bucks a piece. So I have like a dozen of them and every day they get lined up wherever there's trees. They get filled with water. The ducks come. They do what's natural for a duck. They get in it. They make more ducks through through duck propagation, right? But they also, as soon as a duck hits water, what does it do? It drops the eject button. It poops. So I've got this water at the end of the day. They've cleaned their beaks out in it from their feed. It's got all of that detritus in it. It's got all the duck manure in it. And the next morning, I go out, and I dump it. Now it's sitting right next to a tree. Now I'm watering the tree. Now I move it, and I know exactly where it's going each day. And so when I have – like when I go on vacation next month, I have a guy coming to take care of this. And I'll be able to give him a diagram and say put it here on day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way up to day 10 when I come back. And that means the trees are getting fertilized. The trees are getting watered. The ducks are getting watered. The ducks are getting to take their bath. The ducks are getting to keep their eyes clean because that's one of the big issues. They have a gland that they need to be able to get in. So that's the what, but that's the why. Like, so when I was evaluating like my land, how do I make livestock work here? Because I knew as bad as this place was, and I mean, when I moved in, you could stand at the the three acre property, a couple hundred feet from the back of the property to the the front of the property. You could stand on the back fence with your butt against it and see the road clearly. And it was just sparse. And I knew I could not convert a property that large into something lush, especially in the environment that I was in without animals. It couldn't be done. Like if I had a little couple hundred square foot backyard, I could just sheet mulch it and we'd be fine. You're not going to sheet mulch three acres. You're certainly not going to sheet mulch 300 acres, right? It's cost prohibitive. So the animal can process the organic matter through it and put it on the ground. I think about it this way. You have this – you put a cover crop in like uh, cowpea or something like that. And that plant is going to put a certain amount of uh, material below the soil. We call them roots. And when that plant dies, those roots are going to become more soil. They're going to improve the soil. Most of the plant that's above the ground, even if you cut it and drop it to the ground, it's going to oxidize off. It's going to go up in the atmosphere. It's not going to contribute carbon and organic matter into the soil. Only about 15% of it will get in the soil. What we need is a magic machine that will take that plant matter, crunch it all up, make it wet, hold it at about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere in that range, for about 24 hours, and then deposit it as a wet, broken down substance on the ground. There's no machine that does that, but any animal that eats it, that's what's going to happen. It's going to eat that plant, it's going to defecate that plant, and it's going to basically process it so that so much more of that gets onto the ground. And, And so I knew I needed an animal to do that. Again, we ended up with ducks. If I had I don't know, just even five acres, deep soils, more more resilient land. Maybe I'd be running, a de- you know, like a, a miniature cow like a Dexter. Like that would have worked for me. Same principle. We take that principle and we say, how do we make that principle work here, if that makes sense?
0: It does. And I think the uh, another aspect of this that ov- probably gets neglected by people who are new to thinking about this are all of the outputs in a system like that and how you can use them productively and shape your entire system around those outputs that you know are going to come, but you don't think about it until it's there, unless it's there, you're, right? you're actually thinking about permaculture.
1: Well, so think about it this way. Anything in surplus unutilized is pollution, right? So we can take cows, take a dump, right? They make they do it all day long. And if that's all in one place, like a CAFO, we have a sewage problem. We have these huge sewage waste systems from these CAFOs where they have these cows arm in arm, you know, and being stuffed with grain until the day they're harvested. If we take that same manure product and we we do rotational grazing where the cows basically, they are pretty close to each other, it's re, it looks like they're overstocked, but we're moving them every day, then we're mimicking nature. And that's a lot of what we do with permaculture, we try to mimic nature. so. How did we end up with such fertile plains in Africa? Well, you have these massive, massive amounts of herbivores. You have wildebeests and gazelles and water buffalo and all these things. And then you have top predators. And so the top predator is like, well, I'm going to eat one today. Well, the, the defense mechanism for those herbivores is they stay in a very tight pack. And the slow, the sick, the slow, the sick and the stupid die, right? That's the one like the, 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 the gazelles are all going by. The lion's on the hunt. And one gazelle kind of looks at the lion like, hey, stupid's back there, you know, and like, even though he might be a little bit infirm, like the lion realizes, yeah, he's right, the, the dumb one's back there. Chomp, right? And then that animal gets eaten. So those animals are constantly moving in tight groups. When we do rotational grazing, we're mimicking that, right? So when, when we get on that path, we start getting on the path to reestablishing, you know, again, carbon, minerals, nutrients into the land, and then that land becomes incredibly fertile.
0: Well, I know there are a lot of people who are just starting to think about this for maybe for the first time ever, or at least starting to really get serious about this as things get more and more serious. Um, But I think that brings with it a lot of people who may have unrealistic expectations that they are going to become self-sufficient tomorrow just by planting some crops and getting some livestock. Talk about the realism Uh, that principle and how we can, how, how people can go about setting plans for, for example, how many meals a week are you going to provide for your family based on what you're growing this year? Or that, how specific do people need to get with their plan?
1: You don't really need to get that specific, but you do need to put your expectations in check, right? So I don't really think about it in meals. I think about it more in percentage. I, like my first goal on this property was to get enough systems in place that we were eating something from our own property every day, all year round. And our winters are mild enough with a little bit of greenhouse activity and some indoor uh, hydro. That's not a problem. We can do that. So we got to that level. But I would say that the average person is probably better off start out with a basic garden, some form of livestock, and maybe two forms of livestock, but do one first. One first, right? So like, if you want eggs, like the first thing I would say is, well, do you want eggs or eggs and meat? If you want eggs and meat, and you have small space, then you would look at something like quail, right? Because quail are incredibly efficient. You can, i know a guy that raises about twenty, or, uh, does about twenty thousand eggs and about twelve hundred coal birds a year in a one-car garage, and his neighbors does, don't even know he has quail, right? So we're going to again, we're going to back to tailoring to the application, but you're probably not going to do that your first time around. And I think one of the things you have to accept is. If you've never taken care of animals before, especially things like chickens, ducks, quail, rabbits, you're going to kill some. You're going to make some mistakes. They're going to die. The first time you brood animals, you're probably, no matter how many videos you watch, I know from experience, they're going to get in a corner. They're going to get cold. They're going to die. They're going to get the weight of the other animals on top of them. And you're going to have to learn this, and you're going to have to be okay with that. You're also going to need to start thinking about, from a stead of realism, with like chickens, ducks, etc. these animals – have a clock, a biological clock, just like a female woman, right? They go through menopause. We call it with chickens henopause, right? And so that chicken has a, a potential to produce a thousand eggs. Now, if you get a high rate laying chicken that's producing 250 to 300 eggs a year, and it does that for two or three seasons, well, there's not a lot of ammo left in the bank, right? And I've seen seven, eight year old birds lay an egg here and there, but you basically have an expensive pet. So you have to dispose of that animal. Are you okay with that? So this idea that we're going to produce everything I think is flawed and it leads to bad decisions. Like I'm going to get 50 chickens. Have you ever taken care of a chicken before? Maybe you shouldn't do that, right? Like I'm going to put in like a quarter acre garden. Maybe you should start with two or three, four by eight, you know, basic layout raised beds or it just in ground beds and learn a skill. I think what's important is if you just say, look, let's look at a garden. So, Making compost, that's a skill. Starting plants from seed, that's a skill. Building fertility in the bed itself, that's a skill. Building the bed, that's a skill. Learning to do your irrigation so you're not under or over irrigating, that's a skill, right? Digging the bed every year, whether you're going to do double dig or no-till or whatever you're going to do, that's a skill. So it actually really makes sense, maybe that first year you do a garden, plant some stuff that's – the stuff that is easy to plant, like – Squash and all, you can just direct sow your seed. That's fine. But your stuff that kind of needs a head start, like your tomatoes, your peppers, all just buy it. Because your first, your first year, what you're learning is the skill of gardening. Plant starting is a skill, right? So if you start off with really robust young plants, at least you got that done. And then maybe the next year, you get into a situation where now I'm gonna like I'm gonna start my peppers and my tomatoes, and everything else I need to buy is a plant. I'm gonna buy those and slowly move into it, and then come across self-sufficiency and self-reliance with a totally different mindset. Self-sufficiency is something that I say we should measure in percentage, because you're never going to be 100% self-sufficient. So if you're 40% self-sufficient for food, that's 40% of your food you don't have to buy, and going back to our last talk about investing, that's enough money you should retire a multimillionaire. With the most boring investments known to man, if, if the average person could take 40% of their food budget and invest it they should there's no reason they shouldn't retire with somewhere between 5 and 10 million dollars i mean if you did it your whole life right if you're starting at 50 different situation so kind of think about it that way self reliance we measure in time so self reliance we want to look at like if i have enough batteries and flashlights and other ways to make light that i can deal with my power being off and at least light up rooms and see what i'm doing for 3 months I have three months of self-reliance, but it ends. Self-reliance is something that we can quantify how long that's going to go on before we're out of it. Self-sufficiency is perpetual. So it's much better to measure it in percentage because not only is it very difficult to be 100% self-sufficient, even with a pretty large piece of land, who the hell wants to? Why do we have money? Why do we have commerce? Why do we have trade? Because people want things that they can't grow. Could I grow coffee here? OK, if I take incredibly heroic efforts, if I build the best greenhouse ever and I come up with some way to, to heat it without the grid in some way, maybe I could produce enough coffee beans every year to make five pots of coffee. How long is, do you drink coffee? Yeah, you're a coffee drinker. Yeah, I am. <laughs> right. How long would five pots of coffee last? Right. That's a not <laughs> very. Yeah. So so I'm not going to make <laughs> coffee. Right. I'm not going to grow coffee. I'm not going to grow cocoa beans to try to make my own chocolate so if i want coffee or chocolate you know i'm kind of i'm buying that in so a better way to think about self-sufficiency is also like so now can i turn once i get my homestead working for me can i turn surplus into money H- here's an example of that so i grow a really awesome sweet potato it's it's a I can't even pronounce the japanese word but it's a it's a japanese purple skin sweet potato so and it amazing. doesn't look like a No, it's, um, I can't remember now, but it's a complicated word. But it's purple, and if you cut it open, it's like a yellow-white flesh. And it tastes like a buttered baked potato when you eat it, without butter on it. They're delicious. I think they're originally from Okinawa. And sweet potatoes, once they start growing, you cut a piece off, you stick it in water, it makes roots, you plant it, you get another plant. In my ponds, I have these things I call air stacks. Where They're basically a pipe that goes down. And the pump pumps water into them and they make bubbles for the fish to keep them alive. Well, I figured out if I stick the sweet potato slip in that pipe, they root in like three days. And in like a week, they have these massive, huge roots, way better than the slips you buy through the mail that are all sad when you get them. So I made like a hundred slips and I sold them for a dollar a piece, 10, 10 of them for 10 bucks on next door. It's not a ton of money, but it was the easiest money that I, you know, you basically post the thing. Here's a picture. If you'd like some, you can come pick them up. Like, so there, all that money then becomes money. I don't have to earn another way. It's also all what we call fence post money. In other words, me, you, and the fence post, like, no one knows about it's cash money. You know, I I don't have anybody buying those for crypto yet. That would be nice, right? But cash money. And now I can go buy the chocolate, I can go buy the coffee, or I can go buy, God, that's four or five months of feed for my animals just from cutting some sticks and putting them in, in a pipe. And then you start figuring out, well, how many things can I do that with? Because I I personally feel plant propagation is like money printing. Go to Home Depot on a Saturday, on a nice day on a Saturday or a Sunday in the springtime or a Lowe's or uh, like a Mike's big nursery someplace like that. There's people everywhere. They're like fighting with each other over the last nice looking plants and all. Plants grow, right? Like we could just make plants and that's like free money. So we can start leveraging that toward our self-reliance and self-sufficiency by saying if I j- – and I'm not talking about putting in a nursery, needing a license, inviting the, the devil, which is the state, into your backyard. I'm talking about selling a couple hundred bucks worth of this and a couple hundred bucks worth of that, maybe a $1,000 worth of this off your property. I have my aquatic systems where I grow fish. We just buy cheap, stupid goldfish, like the ones you people buy to feed predator fish for like six, nine cents a piece at the pet store. And I just tell the girl, hey, you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd like some with some colors on them. And they're always like, yeah, 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 here's five bucks. Oh, OK. Right. So then you get these fish. We use them for what's called cycling. Get that system running. Well, some of them end up growing like this big. And if you call them instead of a goldfish, an Asian heirloom carp, and you put them on Craigslist, you end up selling this stupid fish for like 50 bucks. <laughs> Well, how many of those do you need to sell to buy four months' worth of duck feed or, or a year's worth of fish feed? And the answer is one or two. You know, we get some koi. We get some little $9 koi. We throw them in the pond, and they end up this big. And you're like, man, that fish is producing a lot of waste. Some yuppie's going to pay $300 for that fish. And you just start – we have to start acting like our ancestors did. When they put in a farm, they didn't just grow corn or tobacco and sell it. They looked what – what is every single thing I can do with this little piece of land – to make 50 bucks here, 100 bucks here, 1,000 bucks there. That's your path. You're not gonna do it by growing everything you wanna consume and you shouldn't try. It's too much work. You would be spending
0: all of your day every day doing nothing other than trying to provide for yourself and still you wouldn't have half of the things that you could have otherwise. So yeah, I agree. There's a reason why we have a system in which people don't produce everything that they consume themselves. Uh, That's why we live in communities.
1: Well, think about how why the number one reason people go into small farms and they fail because they're good at growing, but they're not good at selling, right? You're not going to be able to do everything. You have to focus on something. So most of us are not 100% full-time homesteaders. I do it like you. I do podcasts. I do shows. I'm do. i I'm a content creator, that, and I'm a teacher. That's what I really am. Even me, I don't leave the house unless somebody makes me. I still only have so much time every day to work on this stuff. Like, So I'm not going to be a full-time farmer, and I don't want to be. Honestly, being a podcaster and a teacher pays better than being a full-time farmer, for me anyway. So like, unless you're going to be full-time, you're not going to do it. And even if you're full-time, you're going to do it the same way. What, how do successful farmers work? They eat some of their food, but they sell the majority of it, and they use the money to buy the things they don't produce. You're going to be a cattle rancher. You're going to grow a lot of beef. You're not going to grow a lot of potatoes. Right, you pick and choose what makes sense for you, and, and that that meme. Yeah, there's,
0: there's so many principles here that, that are basic when you think about them, but a lot of people don't spend the time thinking about them. So the, I'm glad that uh, you're, you're putting it out there. And I follow you on Odyssey as well as listening to your podcast. I hope other people will as well. And I note that you put um, up videos, for example, uh, David Holmgren and Jeff Lauden and other people demonstrating various principles and how they work in specific contexts. Uh, tell us about some of the people that has ins- have inspired you.
1: Well, my greatest mentor is Jeff Lawton, and I would say he's probably the most qualified and advanced permaculture practitioner in the world today. And I'm very fortunate to be able to work with him. And he is the guy that I would follow if I was starting from the ground up and I wanted to know as much as I could. Follow me, too. But but Jeff, you know, permaculture is a thing I do. Permaculture is what Jeff does. And Jeff's actually the man that got me into permaculture many many years ago somebody sent me this video It was called green in the desert it was horribly produced it was mostly like still picture animation slideshow type thing but it, it talked about a project that jeff did in jordan near the dead sea below sea level and one of the most inhospitable hospitable places on the planet and they put in swales and they did all they built this food forest and i looked at what happened there and I had just been bitching on my wife about how hard it is to grow food in Texas because it's so hot in our summers. And I went, I got no excuse, man. And it like switched me on. And then the, the co-founder of Permaculture, David Holgram, he's been very inspirational. But the, the, the old man that started it all, Bill Mollison, that worked with, with David, David was basically like a, a research assistant when Bill was a professor at a university in uh, Australia. And they worked together and developed this I saw this old video of Bill Mullison. He was talking about how at one time he actually worked in, in an industry cutting timber. And he started talking to all the people that he worked with, and none of them thought they would ever be able. They're cutting down trees to build houses, but none of them thought they'd ever have enough money to buy a house. And he's sitting there. He goes, and he's got that rough Australian accent and all. And I always thought permaculture was like this purple breathing hippie shit, you know. And he goes you know, I realized they could either stay in the woods or I could go back and fight the bastards. So I went back to fight the bastards and I'm like, okay, I can, I can dig this old man warrior stuff. Like this is, this is up my line. So those three people have been hugely inspirational. And then other specific techniques, one of the gentlemen on my expert council, Darby Simpson, who does rotational grazing, I've learned so much from him, a rotational grazing, Greg Judy. Um, both of those men are just incredible. Joel Salatin. Anybody who doesn't like Joel Salatin, don't talk to me because I'm not going to like you. Like, Just all these people and what I've been amazed with, Mark Shepard, uh, who was um, gave me the honor of writing the forward for his latest book. I mean that gentleman is absolutely switched on and, and they're all different because they're all in different aspects. Some of them are doing really large-scale things. Some of them are doing things that are more specific to like – you know, village level human settlement stuff. That's a, Jeff does a lot of research. Uh, I'm sorry, relief work. I mean, this guy's almost 70 now, and he's still traveling to war zones to do relief work, to teach local people how to be self sufficient for themselves, and how to actually not only produce these things, but then turn what they've done into a demo site to teach others, so they have a revenue stream beyond just the food. The, all of those people I'm, – I'm sure I'm forgetting people I'm going to feel you know bad when I listen to this and go, why didn't you say them? Um, there's just so many people that have made a wonderful path. And there's people that are not huge names that are just – they pick one thing and they teach it really well. Rob Bob is a guy that's on YouTube and finally on Odyssey. I, I think I poked him enough times he got over there. They just specializes in like small-scale backyard aquaponics and wicking beds and stuff like that. There's just never – Never think that there's somebody out there, if they've done this for any length of time, they can't teach you something. Um, I'm not a big believer in listening to people tell you what you should be doing when they've never done it. But anybody who's gotten in and really sunk their teeth into this, they're going to know something you don't. And what I love about it the most, Jim, is that like every day, every day I learn something new. And there's a lot of things I got bored with. I'm a smart guy. I'm really good at being analytical. Give me a book. I read it and I can basically teach from the book after reading it one time. Permaculture, it's never going to happen. It's never going to wear me out. I'm never going to know everything. And I love that.
0: Yeah. It, it is absolutely, it seems like a field of study. You get what you put into it. And the more you put in, the more you'll get out of it. Um, it's fascinating. I'm sure, I mean, again, we're just sort of scraping the surface here and going over some general principles, but I have no doubt there will be people in the audience who are interested in getting into more details. First, let's tell them how to find your work generally, but more specifically, uh, people who have questions, people who want to know more. Is there a community they can interact with? How do they uh, how do, they do this? Do you do workshops? That kind of thing. What How can people yeah. get more?
1: Yeah. So I just want to, before we do that, I want to just finish with one thought. This is systems thinking and it doesn't just apply to your homestead or even your housing. You can run a business with these thoughts. We won't dig into that there, but... Um, I have a whole series that I've done on the eight forms of capital and how we can take these principles and build a business with it. So it's a systems thinking and that's where I want to be as far as uh, getting in touch with me, the survival podcast or the survival podcast, depending on the English teacher you had, um, either way it's spelled the same, the the survival podcast.com short URL for people on phones that want to type all that stuff out. Tspc.co will redirect you there. Um, I've done over almost 3000 podcasts at this point point. I have a great search function, cloud tag, all that. You can find anything you want to know about in the world that we cover. Uh, I do have an Odyssey channel, a YouTube channel, and things like that. You can find all of that on my website. I am on uh, MeWe and Float mainly is my social media now. I am done with Twitter. I've been shadow banned there for years anyway. Facebook, i have absolutely fed up. The only thing I do is torment the uh, fact checkers there once in a while and troll. Um, so MeWe is where we really do most of our things with community now. We have a survival podcast group. We have a permaculture group. We have a regen ag group. We have a cryptocurrency group. Uh, if you can think about it in this place, we're probably doing something with it there. We have a Telegram uh, group that's really great. We have a Discord channel. All of that's on my website. There's a tab that says Get Social, and you can go there and find all of that there. Um, And I do, like you said, videos. I do videos every morning. I call them Miyagi mornings, uh, like uh, Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, but not because I think I'm as wise as Mr. Miyagi. These water gardens that I build – my, bu- my best friend David came over after I built the first one. He goes, I have my doubts on this. This is gorgeous. It looks like something in Mr. Miyagi's backyard. And that whole video series started standing in front of one of those water gardens. So we decided to call it Miyagi Mornings. And we dig into permaculture, self-sufficiency, philosophy, you name it. We do that every day. So people that maybe don't want to listen to an hour and a half podcast, but they got 15 minutes every day. You can check out the videos and decide, you know, pick and choose from the podcasts. And yeah. again, man, thank you for having me hey, here tonight. I, I wouldn't have floor. you on if
0: I didn't recommend your work. I listen to it myself. I like it. Um, and I get the best of both worlds because I listen to the Miyagi Morning Recap that is an hour long or uh, whatever, but I get to hear them all anyway. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I uh, somebody said, "Why don't you just take all of the Miyagi Mornings and make a podcast out of it and take a day a week off?" And I was like, "It's a good idea." But what's better is to have six podcasts a week. So yeah, if you want the Miyagi in a single audio format because the rest of the video is just me standing there. Sometimes there's something specific, but usually it's just me, you know, like we're doing right here. You can just listen to it. Uh, but I am actually thinking I, I kind of teased this on the show today. I'm getting older. I've been busting my ass for 13 years doing this. I want more time in the backyard, more time with the grandkids and stuff. Uh, so I'm actually thinking about turning the Miyagi podcast into one of the weekly episodes and taking a freaking day off a week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you may have earned it by this point, huh, Jack? <laughs> I, I kind
1: of feel like I have, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, awesome. Well, there's so much to, to delve into. And as I say, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of this. And it is about general principles of design in general. And it could apply to a homestead. It could apply to business. It could apply in all sorts of aspects of your life. So I think people will, uh, will benefit from it. And so uh, I hope they'll check it out. Anyway, we'll uh, leave it here for today. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Jack, thanks for coming on.
1: Again, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me.